This Sunday, April 26, will mark the 34th anniversary of the catastrophic Chernobyl nuclear accident in Ukraine. Now, Chernobyl is in the news again, with a multi-week fire still raging within the exclusion zone and signs that radioactivity has again been released in the smoke and debris. In both instances, the public has been inundated with so-called experts trying to convince us that nuclear is really safe and there have been no lingering negative effects from either the initial accident or the fire. But then you hear a genuine expert, one who did her research on the ground at 27 Eastern European medical archives and has the footnotes to prove everything she says. And she tells you... When they found catastrophic results, which was a major epidemic of children with thyroid cancer, very rare cancer among kids, one in a million normally get it. Suddenly in a small area of northern Ukraine, they had 20 kids and the Soviet doctors handed the foreign experts 20 biopsies. They didn't believe that this could possibly be thyroid cancer among so many kids. They brought them home to have examined, and sure enough, they found that these were cancers. But then in their report, they said, we heard some rumors about thyroid cancer among children, and we found those rumors to be anecdotal in nature. But what they were sitting on was hard evidence, and they had other evidence of 30 more kids in Belarus. And that indeed turned out to be the tip of the iceberg of what became a big epidemic in thyroid cancer among kids. The nuclear industry? covering up facts about the negative impact of an accident at one of their facilities? Much as they try to deny that's the case. When you hear a genuine expert like Kate Brown say something like that, and so much more, you get a pretty clear picture of the Chernobyl nuclear cover-up, which wants us to not know that we are all sitting in a single seat, a seat that the entire world shares. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, two terrific interviews. First up, a blockbuster talk with Kate Brown, author of Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. It's a brilliantly researched, stunning story of the hidden impact of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster on people and the environment. We will also hear from evolutionary biologist Timothy Mousseau, whose groundbreaking work on the ground in Chernobyl has been tracing the changes in insects, birds, and now mammals, down to their genetic level. If you think radioactivity isn't doing much of anything to our ability to sustain and perpetuate life on this planet, what Tim Mousseau has to say will make you think again. Plus, our COVID-19 nuclear update and more honest nuclear information 
than Dan Rather has yet featured on his News and Guts website. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 21st, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off with an update on Chernobyl, which not only faces its 34th anniversary this week, but is also still on fire. The blaze started on April 4th and continued through to the 14th when rain knocked it down. And as of last week's program, we thought that it was out. However, the flames revived as of the 15th and 16th and have continued to burn through the exclusion zone. The fire has burned more than 30,000 hectares, which is the equivalent of 116 square miles. Photos of on-site radiation meters showed radiation levels up to 16 times higher than is normal in the area. This comes from a re-release of radioactive materials that have been harbored in dead wood and in leaf and other duff of the forest. According to researchers Timothy Mousseau and Andrews Moeller, the decomposition of humus and dead wood is slowed down in contaminated areas, allowing greater amounts of dry wood to accumulate. This phenomenon could be attributed to the vulnerability of insects and microorganisms to radioactivity. Resuspension of radioactive substances in the atmosphere includes cesium-137 and probably plutonium and strontium-90. According to data released by the Independent Laboratory of CREAD, the Commission for Independent Research and Information on Radioactivity, this fire has caused 700 times the concentration of cesium-137 in the air of the city of Kiev located more than 100 kilometers or 60 miles south of the Chernobyl power plant remains. Kiev, which is already on lockdown for coronavirus, registered the worst air quality in the world this week. And in Finnmark, which is far to the north in Norway, higher than normal levels of cesium-137 were measured. And while the origin of these elevated radionuclides is officially unknown, It is believed that winds from the Chernobyl area could have pushed the radioactive smoke to the Finnsmark region. At the Vogel nuclear construction site in Georgia, as of April 17, which is the most recent data we can find, 64 workers have tested positive for COVID-19 out of just under 300 who have been tested. Vogel has, in response, cut 2,000 workers from its force and instructed them to stay home. But that is out of a workforce of 9,000. Georgia Power claims to remain focused on protecting the safety and health of its workers at Vogel 3 and 4, but construction work continues. Refueling of U.S. nuclear reactors also continues, but the Nuclear Regulatory Commission blackout on reporting instances of COVID-19 positives and sicknesses on site limits our ability to be specific about the impact. Especially troubling is lack of further information from inside the Limerick nuclear power plant near Philadelphia, where two weeks ago, whistleblowers reported that the workforce was, quote-unquote, terrified at the impossibility of social distancing with new workers coming in. Know that in each refueling of a nuclear reactor, it takes approximately four weeks, with an increased outside population of 800 to 1,600 workers necessary on site, all of whom are possible disease vectors. In the UK, 
there have been numerous calls to temporarily halt construction on the new Hinkley Point C reactors. Roy Pumphrey, a spokesman for the environmental group Stop Hinkley, wrote to the acting prime minister, EDF, the contractors in charge of the construction work, cannot confine to barracks workers in its hostels, themselves a potential breeding ground for COVID-19. So when workers venture out, there is a much greater risk of spreading COVID-19 than if they were on furlough and staying at home. And the UK and Ireland nuclear-free local authorities, in a written statement, said NGOs and our organization are aware that construction at the comparable Flamen 3 new nuclear plant in France has been reduced to control and maintenance levels only. The same should happen for Hinkley Point C. At the Hanford site in Washington State, as of April 16, the first coronavirus case was reported. Thousands of workers were ordered to stay home, but there are still between 1,000 and 1,700 workers still on site. In North Carolina, concerns have been raised about radioactive waste storage at the Harris nuclear plant because potential staffing shortages may increase risks of a mishap or affect the readiness to react in an emergency. Regarding last week's nuclear hot seat interview on the uranium mining stimulus money grab at Grand Canyon, Leaders of Navajo Nation have joined with 75 conservation and grassroots groups asking for congressional leaders to reject any bailout for the uranium industry, an industry that has wrecked so much destruction. And they call into question the uranium company's claims that the COVID-19 public health crisis justifies extending a lifeline to a declining industry. This week's numbnuts is that the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission is facing protests after proposing that low-level radioactive waste be disposed of in commercial landfills, not explicitly designed to hold it, rather than at licensed radioactive waste sites. And in Japan on April 20th, a powerful 6.4 earthquake rocked the Fukushima area, followed by a 4.5 aftershock. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment, but first... Chernobyl and its sudden flare-up of danger from wildfires, and this during its anniversary month, no less, took this show's lead this week. But it's about the only thing that could supersede Nuclear Hot Seat's front and center coverage of the ever-evolving COVID-19 nuclear dangers. In truth, none of our shared nuclear nightmares ever goes away. Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, Church Rock, Hanford, nuclear weapons, uranium mining, endless forever radioactive waste. It's a mess, and it will not go away. And because the radioactivity that results from all of it is invisible and not understood as to its dangers, it's easy for the world to go, nuclear? Meh, I have other things to worry about, and turn away, which is a big mistake. That's why you need nuclear hot seat. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, and especially now, with the COVID-19 impact on worker safety, reactor safety, and the nuclear industry's manipulations and tricks during this time of fear and confusion. This program is the one place you can count on to continue to report on the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth about the COVID nuclear connection, while not dropping the ball on all the other nuclear stories. 
And to keep the show going, now more than ever, we need your help. So help us get the word out by providing a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to help with a donation of any size. The big green button helps you easily set up a monthly $5 donation. So please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here are this week's featured interviews on the Chernobyl nuclear disaster on its 34th anniversary. Nuclear disasters seem to come in clusters. And we're just about to conclude this year's anniversary of Alley of what are, to date, the nuclear power industry's greatest hits. Fukushima, which happened on March 11th, Three Mile Island, which was on March 28th, and now this Sunday, Chernobyl on April 26th. So we have two interviews this week to focus on Chernobyl's deadly legacy. The first is with Kate Brown. She is the author of Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. Kate is an historian of environmental and nuclear history at MIT and the author of Plutopia, which won seven major awards. Her research has been funded by the American Academy in Berlin and by Carnegie and Guggenheim Fellowships, and she put their support to brilliant use. I spoke with Kate Brown on Monday, April 15, 2019. Kate Brown, I am so thrilled to have you here today on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's great to be here, Libby. Thanks for inviting me. Figuring out the truth about Chernobyl was an enormous, complex, mind-boggling project. What drew you to this area of research in the first place, and how did you get started? Originally, I was interested in the nuclear security state, and so I started, uh, I wrote a book called Plutopia about the first two cities in the world to produce plutonium. And while I was working that story, these I wasn't interested in, in health or environment, but these farmers who lived downwind and downriver from these two plutonium plants, the Soviet and American one, uh, were telling me about their health problems. And they sounded very similar, strange health problems, and similar across this huge divide between the Siberian uh, Soviet site and the Eastern Washington American site. And I, so I started working to try to figure out what that meant, or if they were right, what scientists thought. And I got a little bit into that story when I, in that book, Plutopia, but I felt like I didn't really get the story. So this is almost a sequel. Uh, and I thought, well, Chernobyl was a civilian site. It wasn't a military site, so it was more, more open. It, it exposed far more people. And it was later. It was in the 1980s rather than the, you know, the 40s and 50s and 60s. So I went into the archives and found this sort of Klondike of health records. In many points, I was the first one to check out these records. It was pretty amazing. They went, you know, right after the accident, they went in and they and they took measurements. They measured air and water and soils, but they also measured people's bodies and food. And we don't really have many records like that, even though, you know, in the 20th century history, we've had a lot of nuclear episodes and a lot of nuclear spills and intentional emissions, but we haven't had too many people curious about what happens next when all this radioactivity goes into the environment. So the Soviets did that and they kept pretty good records you know, in the five years after the accident. Those records, you know, I, I argue in my book, Manual for Survival, are pretty unique. They are, because it seems like that five-year period of time is what gets ignored 
primarily it happened after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It took five years before that longevity study was put into place. And no attempt was made after Three Mile Island as well. And of course, there's been no real long-term study after Fukushima, though that's just getting started. From your perspective, why was this data not used to put forth the truth about what was happening as a result of Chernobyl, meaning the health impact of the radiation on people? At first, it was a censored topic. So the Soviets you know, set out these rules. They said, you know, we don't want anyone talking about levels of radioactivity, health problems. You know, they had a whole list of sort of no-go areas for Soviet employees and people in, in hospitals and who were dealing with cleanup of the accident. And then that story broke into the press around 1989, 1990. And the leaders of Belarus and Ukraine, which had the most, most impacted by the accident, came forward and said, you know, we can't handle this problem anymore. We need help. And they appealed to the UN for help internationally. And that got the leaders in Moscow really nervous. They had been saying all along, this isn't really a problem. The doses aren't that high. Everybody can just you know, stay the course. And increasingly, I see in the, in the classified records that the, the leaders, um, especially the people in, in the public health field in Ukraine and Belarus, were getting increasingly nervous. And more and more researchers were coming forward saying, you know, we see here a big problem. I mean, by 1990, uh, a KGB general who was a medical doctor who ran clinic in Kiev, and he had 2,000 patients who had been exposed to Chernobyl. And he writes, and he says, you know, nobody's got a study like mine. I have the best equipped hospital. I have doctors who can actually know how much exposure their patients got. And after our, you know, four years of study, we have found that Perfectly healthy people, when exposed chronically to low doses of radiation, have a whole host of health problems, and he lists them. And he recommended, this is a KGB general, he recommended that the zone of alienation, the, the, the area that should be depopulated, be extended from 30 kilometers to 120, and that would have gone right up to the beautiful ancient city of Kiev where he lived. That's how alarmed he was. So why didn't this story come into the public? The Soviet Union fell apart. It was starting to fall apart in 90 collapsed completely in 1991. And the Soviet leaders, to try to stave off this problem, asked first the World Health Organization to come in and do an independent assessment with foreign experts. World Health sent in three guys. They traveled around for about 10 days. They came out and they said, you know, we don't see any problems. We think you could double or triple the permissible dose and everybody would be fine. No one believed that study. You know, what can three guys do in, in 10 days? So then the Soviet leaders asked the International Atomic Energy Agency to come in, and they brought in more scientists, between 100 and 200 scientists. They worked for about 18 months. They looked at levels of radioactivity. They had a medical section that looked at about 1,200 people, very small study when you consider that 4.5 million were exposed. And they came away and said, you know, we did this study. We see a lot of illness in this area, but nothing from exposure to Chernobyl contaminants, uh, and we don't expect to see any detectable health problems in the future other than a few cases of childhood thyroid cancer. What they weren't saying is that they designed a study for the study to find only catastrophic results. And when they found catastrophic results, which was a major epidemic of children with thyroid cancer, very rare cancer among kids, one in a million uh, normally get it. Suddenly in a small area of northern Ukraine, they had 20 kids and the Soviet doctors handed the foreign experts 20 biopsies. 
they didn't believe that, that they, this could possibly be thyroid cancer among so many kids. They brought him home to have examined. And sure enough, they found that these were cancers. But then in their report, they said, we heard some rumors about thyroid cancer among children. And we found those rumors to be anecdotal in nature. But what they were sitting on was, you know, hard evidence. And they had other evidence of 30 more kids in Belarus. And that indeed turned out to be the tip of the iceberg of what became a big epidemic in thyroid cancer among kids. Now, what that report did, that report that said no effects, we don't expect to find any effects in the future, right at that time, the UN was trying to raise a billion dollars in today's fund to do two things, carry out a long-term medical study akin to the study of Japanese bomb survivors, but of Chernobyl survivors. And, and this is a very different kind of nuclear event. These are Hiroshima was counted as one big x-ray that lasted less than a second. Chernobyl exposures were long-term chronic exposures of low doses. And those exposures are, are actually far more common. And then going forward in the future, humans are, are far more likely to have a Chernobyl set of exposures and a Hiroshima bomb set of exposures. So all kinds of scientists said we need to do a long-term study. And then the second thing this money was going to be for was to move 200,000 people who were sitting in highly contaminated land. But after that UN report came out that said, we don't see any Chernobyl health effects and we don't expect to in the future, that pledge drive went nowhere. They raised you know, less than $6 million. Why do you think the IAEA and before that, the scientists who came in were all minimizing the impact of Chernobyl? Well, all I could think of is that at the same time in the 1990s, the big nuclear powers, US, UK, France, and Russia were facing lawsuits from their own exposure, their own testing and production of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. Uh, you know, the French had blown up nuclear weapons in Algeria and in the South Pacific. The British had blown up weapons in the South Pacific and in Australia. The Americans in the Marshall Islands and in, in the American heartland in Nevada. And the Soviets in Kazakhstan and in the Arctic. And so all kinds of people who had, whether they're atomic veterans of in battlefield conditions or whether they were people who had been injected with radioactive isotopes for you know experiments or people who had lived downwind of or downriver of nuclear production facilities or if they lived anywhere where the fallout landed, were starting to sue their governments about their exposures and what they felt were the resulting health problems. So if you could say Chernobyl was the worst nuclear disaster in human history, and only 33 to 54 people died, then you could make these lawsuits go away. And that's indeed what happened in the course of the 1990s and the early 2000s, as these lawsuits got no traction, in, in part because of this Chernobyl narrative. Do you think it was a conscious decision on the part of the World Health Organization, the IAEA, UNSCEAR, and the various governments involved to minimize this for that reason, or was it a consequence of them going on another train of thought? You know, like a, a lot of people are, are reporting that my book talks about a big conspiracy theory, and I don't use that word, and I, I don't think that's what was happening. I think that these scientists who had been working kind of in a bubble for a long time with the Hiroshima data, felt that they knew exactly, you know, what they call the Hiroshima studies, the gold standard. They felt like they had a real handle on what radiation medicine was and that what the thresholds were for exposure. And when the Chernobyl 
when people started talking about this public health epidemic in the Chernobyl territories, and, and we're not just talking about cancers, what the records show is that people started to feel pretty unwell almost right after the accident. The official tally is that 300 mostly firemen and nuclear plant operators were hospitalized. The count that comes out of the archives is 40,000 people were hospitalized in the summer after the accident, many of whom were children. And they didn't feel well, you know, sort of like respiratory infections, uh, chronic sore throats, large thyroids, thyroid problems, problems with their endocrine system, immune system disorders. Pregnant women had all kinds of complications at childbirth, increasing frequencies of birth defects and uh, spontaneous miscarriages. And then after about 18 months, cancers kick in, leukemias, and then later thyroid cancers among children, and other kinds of cancers start to climb. And so when this story came out, I think the international community of scientists, it didn't make sense to them. They had a great deal of faith in their established science, and these results that were coming in confounded them. They said, sure, there might be thyroid cancer among kids, but only after maybe 10 years, not after three or four years. And they just couldn't believe the evidence as it was presented to them. And if they were to believe it, they would have had to radically alter many of the regulations for operating nuclear power plants and running nuclear bomb factories. And we would have had to rethink, I think, pretty drastically our whole nuclear enterprise. And of course, that was something that they wished to avoid. Now, scientists from Ukraine and Belarus noisily rejected the IAEA's dose estimates and the results of it, and they charged that the IAEA investigators overlooked hotspots of radiation, the resuspension of plutonium particles kicked up by dose, and the ingestion of radioactive particles. They said that people's doses were much higher than the IAEA estimated, What did all of these protestations by scientists from the Ukraine and Belarus lead to? Unfortunately, they didn't go very far. You know, this is at a time, and this is where history really plays an important role, when the Soviet Union was falling apart. And and everything that was Soviet, uh, whether it was politics or economics or science and medicine, was considered bad, retrograde, corrupt, somehow majorly flawed. And so when these doctors came forward and said this, um, they had been living with this situation for five years. They had been working closely on the ground with patients. You know, what we find in the Chernobyl territories is that one of the charges is, well, when, when you look for disease, you're sure to find it. And there are, there are all these, you know, extra medical examinations of these people. But in fact, uh, hospitals are running at 50, 60 percent because the doctors were the first to leave these territories. They saw what was going on and they they wanted to get out of there with their families intact. But the people who did stay were quite committed and they presented their evidence. They had case control studies. They had observational studies. They had all kinds of data that they presented, including biopsies, you know, actual physical material to, to hand to the Western researchers. And it was just very, very easy to discredit them, to say, well, you know, these Soviets, they don't have standardized Western protocols. They have very poor equipment. They have really sketchy knowledge. And, you know, these guys mostly only spoke, you know, Ukrainian or Russian. They didn't speak English. They weren't very facile. Um, When they went to international conferences, they had trouble communicating. They had trouble presenting their works. So um, it was really easy to let the triumphalist democracy and capitalism have won rhetoric win out 
and lots of people thought that it was a quite sensible dance to take. Much of your research was done looking at reports from small clinics and doctors who were on the ground in the area around Chernobyl and reporting honestly. And they were aided and abetted by what can be called citizen scientists, meaning people on the ground who said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. I've got to do something about it. What were some of the more remarkable steps taken by the people who were living in that zone to try and bring their information to the awareness of scientists in higher places, say from the West, who could possibly make a difference in the narrative? One thing I was on the lookout as I worked my way through 27 archives were everyday heroes, people who, you know, their bosses told them to shut up or not to say anything or to, you know, sort of massage the numbers. And there were people who just refused to do that. Uh, and so there was one woman who, she was a, a physicist working at university in Kiev, and her husband was a civil defense guy. And so they had a Geiger counter. And they went around, and, you know, they heard about the accident, and they went around just in the courtyard of their building in Kiev, and they found these really radioactive spots in different parts of the lawn. And they, they went and they found these little tiny grains of sand that were fiercely radioactive. And these were the hot particles that everybody's talking about. And this woman, Natalia Lazitskaya, gathered these hot particles, measured the counts of radioactivity coming from them. And as she ran her calculations, and, she, and then she would come back and measure the, you know, the amount of decay. And then so she'd figure out what isotope it was by how quickly it was decaying. And she gathered you know, all these different radioactive isotopes and figured out what the whole cocktail was coming from the plant. And very early on, she figured out that this was not, as we were told, a chemical and a steam explosion, but in fact, a nuclear explosion at the plant, that nuclear power plants actually do blow up like nuclear bombs. And she wrote this whole report and sent it to her government to say, you know, by the way, I want you to know that I've run these calculations and this is what I found out. And, you know, mind you, she doesn't have a big institute. She doesn't have a lot of complicated machinery. She doesn't have a whole staff. She's just doing this, you know, in her little tiny two-bedroom apartment in Kiev with a Geiger counter. And in 2016, the institute in Sweden did, in fact, affirm what she'd been saying for 20 years, that this was a nuclear explosion. And Lizitskaya tried to get word out to the West that there were real problems and that there was much higher counts of radioactivity than the Soviets were letting on. And so in 1988, there was an international conference in Kiev. And so she disguised herself as a cleaning lady, got a bucket and a mop and went into the conference and, and got into the closed conference that way by pretending she was you know, just there to clean. And then she went up to a Western researcher, Robert Gale, and tried to give him a, a stack of her research that she had gathered. And Gail probably never knew this was happening because four KGB agents swept her up, grabbed her by, every, by each elbow, and led her out the back alley. But there are all kinds of people like that. Another guy, he could not get his leaders in Kiev to understand that even though his region had pretty low counts of radioactivity, the milk was off the charts, over permissible levels. And three quarters of the milk was over permissible levels of radioactivity for the time. He went, he knocked on doors, and he talked to people, and he showed them all his records. He finally got 70 liters of milk and sent it to Kiev in a truck and said, you check this milk and tell me what you think. And then once he had done that, actually having the physical, nutritious milk you know, in front of them that was indeed above permissible levels of radioactivity, they finally determined that this area should have special shipments of clean food. So there's people like that throughout the story. 
it's really pretty wonderful. It doesn't take many people to quietly resist or be committed to doing their job. That guy with the milk, Alexander Komov, he just wrote me the other day. He says, I'm no hero. I was just doing my job. And I think those are wonderful stories. And, and these people should be recognized as heroes alongside the firemen and the miners and the nuclear plant operators that risked their lives to contain this accident. You mentioned Dr. Robert Gale, who was an American. What larger role did he play in the Chernobyl disaster and other nuclear disasters that followed? Well, he went there, you know, very altruistically to um, try to help out. And because he had connections with Armin Hammer, the Soviets were saying no, no, no to all the capitalist countries. But Armin Hammer was a very influential person. And he appealed directly to Gorbachev. And Gorbachev said, yes, Gail can come in. And Gail had a, a new sort of what he thought would help the firemen overcome radiation sickness. And he wanted to try it out on them. And so he brought that along. And the Soviets were both nervous about this new untested drug. It had been tested on monkeys, but not humans. And also excited, maybe it would work. And so Gail and a Soviet doctor, Vorobyov, tried it on themselves first, and then they tried it out on the firemen. And unfortunately, it did not help the firemen. But then after that, Gail took to the podium, and he was the first person speaking from within the Soviet Union about the medical disaster as he witnessed it. And he really became the sort of spokesman or the, or the, the face of not just this nuclear disaster, Chernobyl disaster, but he went on to um, a year later in Brazil, there was a smaller nuclear accident in Guyana, Brazil. He, he showed up there. He started to testify for different lawsuits about nuclear power plants and things like that. So he became a real spokesman, having started out as a cancer doctor, somebody who specialized in leukemia. There's an enormous disparity in reports on the number of people who died as a result of the Chernobyl disaster. The what I call the unholy trio of the IAEA, the World Health Organization, and UNSCEAR have an echo chamber that repeats often that there are only, and the number varies depending on the source, but approximately 54 immediate deaths in the affected area and maybe between 4,000 and 6,000 cases depending on the source of thyroid cancers as a result. On the other hand, we have the book Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment by Yablokov, Nesterenko, and Nesterenko that concludes that as of 15 years ago, when it was published in 2004, there were just under a million premature deaths as a result of the radioactivity released. Why this disparity and which, in your opinion, is closer to the truth? Well, the disparity is because you cannot see, taste, feel, or touch radioactivity unless you get a big dose, an acute dose, the effects and medical effects show up you know, much later, whether it's months or years or, or decades. So it's very difficult to pin radioactive contaminants to a particular illness, especially when the illness is more subtle and not acute. And, and most of radiation medicine is focused on acute effects that amount to cancer and death. So everybody wants a death count, and the uncertainties in the death count are huge. And the way they come to those numbers are through a series of estimations and extrapolations. So the first thing to be estimated is the dose, how much do we think people got, and they do that by reconstructing the jet streams, you know, the weather, how much rain came down, taking live measurements on the ground, and then estimating you know, what people were eating, where they were standing, how much time they spent outside. All of this is you know, relatively, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in these calculations. And then they extrapolate 
And this is what the you know the unscare scientists would do is is extrapolate that dose against what the Hiroshima survivors got. And with that, you know, extrapolation, they'd say, so therefore we expect to see 4,000 cancers in the future or something like that. The problem with extrapolating from Hiroshima is Hiroshima is a very different nuclear event. You know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, two bombs went off. They count the, the less than a second flash of radioactivity that came from the bombs dropping. They do not calculate in that equation of the Japanese bomb survivors the fallout from radioactivity. That was called at the time in the 40s residual radiation. The Americans, you know, with General Leslie Grove, who's the head of the Manhattan Project, he was really nervous that the Americans had spent millions of dollars building nuclear weapons, and they were worried that their nuclear weapons were going to go the way of chemical weapons, that they're going to be determined to be an illegal form of warfare because it didn't just blow up, you know, and kill somebody right away, but it continued to kill people later on and maim and harm people. And that was considered, you know, just like chemical weapons, unfair. So they emphasized, you know, these people died, these people who died from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs died from burns, just regular thermal burns that anybody could die of in conventional warfare. And they tried to emphasize this this is like a conventional explosion. So they wanted to renounce that there were long-standing, you know, that, that there was residual radiation, that radioactivity remained in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the Japanese were reporting this strange atomic poison that kills people who were not there in those cities when the bomb went off, but still came in later and got sick. And some of them died. Like, how did that happen? There must be something lingering. But none of that residual radiation or or what we now call fallout was considered in the dose. The other problem with the Hiroshima studies is that they began five years after the explosions. And so they asked people, where were you standing, you know, in 1945 when the bomb went off? And people recalled to the best of their knowledge. And as we know from oral history, that human memories are pretty dodgy, especially in, in traumatic situations. So they did a dose reconstruction. That, Japanese scientists at the time actually took measurements. Uh, Historian Susan Lindy talks about this. They took their own measurements. They recorded pretty high levels of radioactivity. The Americans, when they came in and occupied Japan after the war, confiscated those records, and we don't know where they are to this day. So the Hiroshima records are dose reconstructions. They're estimates. They're guesses about how much of a dose people got. And then the third problem with the Hiroshima studies or the Japanese lifespan studies, as they're formally called, is that the Americans controlled these studies until the 1970s. And as I said, the Americans had a political interest in minimizing the impact of nuclear warfare, of atomic warfare. What influence, if any, did this uncertainty and the minimization of health impact information from Chernobyl, and also what you're saying about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, have on our understanding of the medical impact at Three Mile Island, which happened before Chernobyl, and Fukushima, which happened after Chernobyl? In both the Three Mile Island case and the Fukushima case, as with the Chernobyl cases, you know, because scientists working, you know, from the Japanese lifespan data are saying, you know, these doses are too low. We estimate there's going to be no problems. We really don't have uh, studies. You know, we don't have serious studies. You know, that we haven't put in the time and money and commitment to do a long-term epidemiological study on low doses, chronic low doses of radioactivity. And, you know, that is the scenario that going forward in the future, we're most likely to experience. We're probably going to have more nuclear accidents, more nuclear spills. We encounter 
man-made radioactivity in the environment almost every day. And so we should know that and we should demand that our scientific establishment and that our governments do those studies finally. And that's the, where, where I end. You know, I, I mean, we see some troubling data coming out of places where people have been exposed to man-made radioactivity, but those are just correlations. What we need is to determine you know, causation. And, and to do that, we, we finally need to do some real studies. Do you think it's intentional that these studies have not been done? I cannot impugn what other people's motives or intentions are. But I think it's troubling that we haven't done them. I can say that for sure. Do you think that the experts who deny or minimize any health harm from Chernobyl's radiation, not necessarily the bureaucrats or the politicians, but the scientists, actually believe their own denials of radiation's health impact? Oh, I'm sure they, yes. I mean, I, they believe in their science and, and they really hold to their science. But I think what's amazing about radiation medicine is that really since the end of the Cold War, there have been amazing developments and discoveries in the field of biology and medicine. We've learned about microbiome. We've learned about how sensitive um, neurological systems are. We've learned about inner cell communication and how sensitive they are and epigenetic effects that can be passed down, you know, basically, you know, almost acquired traits or patterns of cell communication that can be passed down from parent to offspring. And very few of those insights have translated into radiation medicine. You know, we sort of need an update of that field. Since the publication of your book, what has been the response in the media? And have you faced any significant pushback from World Health Organization, International Atomic Energy Agency, UNSCEAR, or any of the governments or individuals that you reference in the book? No, I have not had pushback from those agencies. I've had some critical reviews, and, and that's fair enough. And sometimes um, there's been reviewers who are, you know, industry scientists or, or, or somehow make their money from, you know, sort of promoting nuclear energy. And, and I don't think that's entirely fair of publications to ask, you know, sort of pro-nuclear spokespeople and scientists to review my book, because I don't think you can do, uh, give an impartial review for that. But uh, most of the reviews have been very good when they're an impartial reviewer. Do you think that the radiological impact of Chernobyl on the health of people in Ukraine, Belarus, and really around the world will ever be determined beyond the shadow of scientific doubt? Oh, I hope so. I hope one day we, we will have certain knowledge. Just like for a long time, we didn't know, you know, it was debated and fiercely fought over arsenic, lead, tobacco, DDT x-raying fetuses in vivo. Like all of these things were debated, fiercely debated, you know, when scientists first discovered these problems, fiercely resisted, usually by people who stood to make money from selling products that were damaging to human health. Now we know for sure that cigarettes cause cancer. We know for sure that lead causes all kinds of developmental problems among children, especially. We know that arsenic is poison. And so I think one day we'll, we'll have more certain understanding of what low doses of radioactivity does to human health. If you were to sum up the message of your book and all the research that went into it and present that message to the world, what would you want to say? I guess I'd want to say that Chernobyl is most often described as an accident, and I think that's that's wrong, that an accident implies that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And people definitely want closure when there's been a bad accident or any kind of trauma. But I think that's doing this event a 
disservice. What I found as I researched is that that area in northern Ukraine was contaminated with radioactive fallout from nuclear testing before they even built the Chernobyl plant. The people who lived near that swamp, farmers, had 10 to 30 times more radioactive cesium in their bodies than people who lived in Minsk and Kiev. And I find that after the accident, the, the big Chernobyl accident in 1986, there are other smaller nuclear accidents, another pretty big one, a pretty big explosion in 1991 at that same Chernobyl plant. Um, I was visiting, following biologists who work in the zone um, in 2017, and, and my Geiger counter was screeching. And I asked them, what's going on? And they said, oh, we had a fire here about eight months ago, and, and that burned the leaf litter and limbs and, and trees and volatilized the radioactivity that was stored there. That was another nuclear event. It was probably something that would have been rated a, you know, level five on the IEA ratings chart, but nobody paid attention to it. And so you know, I think what we need to do is think of Chernobyl as an acceleration on a timeline of radioactive emissions that have occurred since 1945 and that have sort of peppered and saturated, especially the Northern hemisphere of our globe. And if we look at other statistics, uh, those that record rates of cancer, rates of birth defects, male sperm counts, which have dropped in half in the Northern hemisphere since 1945, Cancer rates that have you know steadily climbed, especially thyroid cancer, has not stopped climbing. Childhood cancers used to be a medical rarity; they no longer are. I think that, again, that's a, that's a correlation. But I think we should get a lot more curious and ask our leaders and ask the scientific establishment to figure out what's going on. Why is there why is there a cancer epidemic? Um, why are male sperm counts dropped in half since forty five? And that's, I think, what I'd like readers to leave with at the end of my book. One final thought. What, if any, steps are in place to allow you to address the United Nations with this information? And what might we do to help speed that along? Well, I think we should ask for another pledge drive, and we should ask for you know, countries that are, especially countries that are nuclear powers and have nuclear reactors, and certainly as lots of countries gear up for a, a new nuclear renaissance, we should ask to have that study done and paid for by you know every country that's building nuclear power plants to contribute for that study so that we can finally know if this is a safe enterprise that we're pointing towards in the future. Kate Brown, your book is a fabulous read. It's like a detective story or a murder mystery on a global level. It is, I think, necessary reading for anyone who really wants to understand what the issue of nuclear is all about. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks a lot, Libby, for having me here. That was Kate Brown, author of Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. If you want to understand the impact of nuclear radiation, as well as how nuclear boosters did and still do their best to cover up the actual impact of Chernobyl. This is one book you'll want to not only read, but to keep on your bookshelf as an ultimate reference tool. It's the logical companion to the Yablokov, Nesterenko, Janet Sherman book, Chernobyl, Consequences for People and the Environment, and it takes radiation discussion of Chernobyl into the 21st century. Now for our second interview with Professor Timothy Mousseau. 
He is an evolutionary biologist and faculty member of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of South Carolina and has been in that position since 1991. Beginning in 1999, Professor Mousseau and his collaborators have explored the ecological, genetic, and evolutionary consequences of low-dose radiation in populations of plants, animals, insects, and people inhabiting the Chernobyl region of Ukraine and Belarus. More recently, he initiated a second research program in Fukushima, Japan. This is an excerpt from a much longer interview originally heard on Nuclear Hot Seat number 243 from February 16, 2016. What were some of your early findings from Chernobyl? <laughs> the first visit uh, in 2000, we went out and found all of the barns, uh, the old dairy farms that we could find in and out of the zone. We, we snuck inside the zone at the time. At the time, the exclusion zone wasn't really as high security as it is now, and, and so it was easy to sort of zip in and zip out with nobody ever catching you. And so we, we found uh, a number of the old dairy farms that still had barn swallows in them, inside the zone, outside the zone, as well as in areas a fair distance away that were much cleaner, less radioactive, and, and started catching all the birds we could catch. And the first discovery was quite striking. The uh, Many of the birds living inside the exclusion zone or right on the border of the exclusion zone had patches of little white feathers on them. You know, nothing, nothing really striking, no three-headed monsters or anything like that, but these birds were extremely unusual. They were pale to begin with, but they also had these patches of what we've been calling partial albinos. There are other names for this phenomenon, but everybody sort of understands partial albinism when you say it. And this was much higher in the areas of high radiation. There are, there are a few birds in the cleaner areas that show this, but very, very few relative to the hot areas. So that was sort of the first observation. We came back each year to these same farms to follow these same birds. And the, the, the beauty of barn swallows is that they'll actually come back to the same barn, the same nest, as long as they're alive, once they start breeding. And so we put uh, little bands on their legs so we could actually track their survival from one year to the next. We could see how many eggs they were laying and how well their babies were doing. And uh, we could take a little blood from them so that we could look for genetic damage and, and antioxidant levels. And we, we figured out how to get a little sperm sample from the males so we could look at how, how well their reproductive materials performed. And all of this started to add up to an interesting story after a couple of years. First, we noticed that males in the more radioactive areas were showing sperm that was either deformed or not particularly active, uh, not particularly good at doing its job. That was the first sort of clue that fertility might be a, an issue for these birds. Then we started to notice that many of the birds had other strange abnormalities, physical abnormalities, tumors on their, their heads, tumors on their feet and on their rear ends and sometimes on their wings, just sort of abnormalities that you never see in a normal population. And so all of this kind of added up to the fact that these birds were not doing particularly well. They were living half as long as birds in clean areas. Uh, they were having fewer offspring. The male, as I said, the male fertility was lower. Uh, recently, we've also shown that they have higher levels of cataracts in their eyes. Uh, it's just a plethora of negative consequences of, of the exposure to radiation. That was the beginning of all of this. And you go back to Chernobyl still every year to do the updates on the bird population? 
You know, we do. We've been tracking the barn swallows every year. And, uh, you know, every year we try to add a little experiment to the pot so that we learn a little bit more about what might be going on. The fact that we've been doing it for 15 years straight, this will be the 16th year for these populations, gives us a lot of statistical power for the sorts of questions uh, we're interested in. Some some years we've been putting little dosimeters on the uh, the legs of these, these birds for the last four years. And so now we have a really good idea of, of how big a dose they're getting as they fly around, and, and that's never been documented before. We keep following these birds, but in 2004, 2003, 2004, we realized that barn swallows were great, but people you know, had broader interests than just barn swallows. Well, what we realized actually was that there was this uh, growing interest in what was going on in the Chernobyl zone. We weren't just doing it to satisfy our own curiosity at that point. We realized that other folks were interested in, and the questions that we were getting were, said, this is happening to the barn swallows. Is it happening to the other birds? What's happening to the insects? What's happening to the mammals? And so we started to branch out into a few other areas. We brought in other experts from other universities to, to collaborate with to help us in, in some of the systems we had less experience with. And so now we've been working on the entire bird community. I guess three, four years ago, we added a group from Finland who are a mammal specialists, small mammal specialists, and we've been trapping rodents in Chernobyl as well as in Fukushima and uh, learning an awful lot about other components of the ecosystem in the area. Any results that you can report as yet? One of the great things about working with you know some of the best scientists, some of the most accomplished scientists from around the world on these projects is that you know we're getting a lot done. We've published about 80 papers in the last 10, 11 years on Chernobyl and Fukushima, and, and folks can go to my website and, and get them all. But the latest results... We published a paper last week, actually, it came out. It was one of our first papers on the small mammals, the rodents of Chernobyl, where we document an increase in the rate of cataracts in the eyes of the females. You know, we published a paper on the birds of Chernobyl two or three years ago, showing, again, that the cataracts in the eyes were much higher levels in, in, in the more radioactive areas. Now we're seeing this also in the rodents. And so this provides substantial support for the hypothesis that, you know, this is the radiation that's causing this. Folks tend to, uh, you know, if they can, they will throw out some objections to some of these ideas. They'll suggest that it's not due to the radiation, it's due to something else. And they'll have a long list. But clearly, the more results we have that run in parallel uh, among different systems in Chernobyl, but also amongst the same systems in both Chernobyl and Fukushima, when we find the same kinds of results in both places, the only explanation that makes any sense is that it's the result of the radiation exposure. And so... So that's why we've invested so much into replicating uh, most of our Chernobyl work in as much as we can in Fukushima as well over the last five years now. Dr. Timothy Musso. He is an evolutionary biologist and has been a faculty member of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of South Carolina since 1991. Listening to that excerpt makes me eager to share his full interview with you very soon on an upcoming program. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 21st, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, 
miningawareness.wordpress.com, wfxg.com, somersetlive.co.uk, tri-cityherald.com, carolinapublicpress.org, phoenixnewtimes.com, reuters.com, thebulletin.org, stateimpact.npr.org, chemistryworld.com, Children of Chernobyl Association, NASA, CREERAD, IRSN.FR, OrdoNews.com, Forbes.com, TheBarrensObserver.com, TheBigWobble.org, and the totally captured by the nuclear industry fools at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Special thanks to Hervé Coutois for his translation of the French articles on the Chernobyl fire, as well as a steady stream of fact-based information. Merci, Monsieur Reynard. Okay, listener involvement time. Here's what I want you to do. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, and if you haven't already, scroll to the yellow box, put in your first name, put in your email address, and we will send you every week a link to the show. Because that way, you know you'll always get it. And while you're at it, go to Facebook, to the Nuclear Hot Seat page, and click on like, click on follow, make a comment, look at the comments that other people have made and respond to those. Let's get a conversation going because we need more social media engagement. It helps get the word out to others online who might not have a chance to know about the program otherwise. It's algorithms and stuff. You can also find Nuclear Hot Seat on any of your favorite podcast platforms and on YouTube. Just put in Nuclear Hot Seat and bam, there it is. It comes up. With thanks to Julie Stan for all of her years of posting the show that way. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, always take a moment, go to nuclearhotseat.com, and look at ways there that you can support the show in moving forward. We will be grateful for anything you can do to help us out. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with a date that it's over, because once it starts, it is never over. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.